Hello and welcome to a very special bonus episode of the Scary Stuff Podcast. This is a mini companion to episode 13, and we are delighted to be interviewing evil Ted Smith. Ted has an extensive history of working on special effects, model making, and props on major motion pictures. He's doing fabulous work on foam cosplay at the moment, which you can see on his Twitch and YouTube channels. And we'll get into why we reached out to him following episode 13 for an interview very shortly. One quick note, we did try a new audio setting for this interview, which our microphones didn't take to very well. So Jake and I sound a little spotty and Nick sounds a bit like Soundwave. But Ted sounds terrific and that's what matters. And we hope you enjoy listening to this episode as much as we enjoyed chatting to Ted because we had an absolute blast. and welcome to this special interview segment of the Scary Stuff Podcast. This is Eric Dellinger, and I'm joined by our host, Nick Leamy. Hey, everybody. And host, Jacob Jones-Goldstein. How you doing? And we are joined today by a special guest, Evil Ted Smith. Hello. Yay. Yay. Thank you. How are you, Ted? I am good. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, thank you for joining us. So you're the second interview we've ever done on the Scary Stuff Pod, and we mentioned in a previous episode that our dream was to you know, get Hollywood people on the podcast just as an excuse to ask them about, you know, really tangential or really niche aspects of their filmography and whatnot. But in this particular case, it's a rather left field project you worked on. That's the entire pretext for you coming on the pod in the first place. <laughs> so we could be more thrilled to have you on to kind of transition. And as far as asking you to come on the pod here. So I first found out about your work earlier this year, actually, you're actually in mid 2020 via the Baltimore Comic Con. Because you did a cosplay live stream. Yes. And we're based in Delaware and Baltimore is our big local convention. So I was watching the Baltimore Con since we couldn't go live this year. And I looked up your history and your IMDb at that point. I said, oh, this guy worked with Steve Wang. That's so cool. And, you know, maybe at some point we'll do a movie he did at some point on the pod. and Maybe we can get him on. And so for our latest episode, we were reviewing Dragon Blue, a Japanese movie, which we were reviewing because I subjected Jake and Nick to a series of horror movies, all starring professional wrestlers. And Dragon (laughs) Blue starred the great Buddha. And in the process of researching that, I stumbled across a YouTube video called The Great Muda Origin of the Demon. Yes. And watching the credits for that, I almost did an actual spit take when the credits rolled by and I saw Creature. Ted Smith. (laughs) Yeah, that's me. So I was so blown away and so excited to see you show up in that. So our first guest that we had on here was Dave Lawson Jr., producer of Rustic Films. Great guy, lovely guest. But one thing Dave Lawson Jr. cannot say is he cannot say that he has a TKO victory over Kaiji Muto, former NJPW (laughs) heavyweight champion. That is something only evil Ted Smith can claim. Yeah, that's great. That's right. Nobody can say that. <laughs> that was a very surreal experience because I've been friends with Steve Wang for years and met Steve working in the movie industry and special effects and stuff like that. And I was a model maker for the good chunk of my life was being miniatures. I first moved out to California in 1989. And uh, I had the illusions of being a makeup guy. I had always a passion for it. I thought it was cool. And I found out really quickly that I was 25 when I moved out here and I was working with Steve and these guys and Eddie Yang. At the time, I was 17 years old. I watched him block out a monster head in a matter of hours. He did like a block out, and then we went and had lunch. And he had the Lisker head shaped out in clay, water-based clay. And he had it shaped out. I was like, 
that would take me weeks. This kid did an hour, and I finally realized we need to reevaluate myself. Like, <laughs> I need to look at ourselves hard in the mirror, Ted. Really, can like that was my competition. Yeah. And I finally realized there's people who have. If you think you like something, there's people that like it more than you do and live it and breathe it. And I found <laughs> that I love movies, and I found that my strong point was props and miniatures, and like so I kind of changed gears and got into miniature making. And did that for a, a good trick of my life. But yeah, but Steve on Tales from the Dark Side, the movie. Nice. Woo! And uh, Steve was brought on as a sculptor for the miniatures. Uh, there's an opening shot. The guys, again, this is before CG. If you guys watch Tales from the Dark Side, the movie, the opening shot is a shot of New York City. And the camera pans up and goes into this guy's studio apartment, which was a giant miniature. We built this miniature of uh new york we built miniature you know, forced perspective buildings and then the top of this guy's apartment was all done with glass and the apartment was a rear projection window so they shot the footage of the guy working and reprojection it on the ceiling of the model and in the shot there's a gargoyle perched on the building and steve wang sculpted this gargoyle so i was working making the miniatures and steve was sculpting this gargoyle and we kind of hit it off and we started talking about movies and monsters and how much I love Creature of the Black Lagoon. And Steve, like, that's my favorite monster of all time. And so we kind of hit it off with that. And then he turned to me and goes, hey, I'm making this low-budget film called Kung Fu Rascals. I was like, oh, that sounds amazing. And then I jumped on that with him. And that was nine months of my life working for free. So, <laughs> <laughs> But I digress. The point being was that we became really good friends. We worked on movies and he, did the, he ended up doing all the Guyver movies. Mm. Uh, we did Guyver's, uh, the first one, which was, you know, so funny. I'm really happy to say that the Guyver film now gets the love I think it deserved when we made it because when we made it, it was so below the radar. It was back in the days of VHS. And VHS, you know, back in those days, guys in the 90s, they're just crapping stuff out 90 miles an hour. Yep. And it'd be one good movie here, good movie there, bad movie there. But the market was flooded and we just got lumped in with everybody else. I think Steve was hoping for a bigger Japanese distribution in Japan. And so it just kind of like the, the distributing companies, just like they did with them, they just kind of took it and just dumped it. Didn't really get a theatrical in Japan. You went to start the video. And then over the years, I didn't find out until I started doing cosplay. And I went to Germany for the first time. And there was a guy who traveled from um, France. And he showed up with this giant poster. It was almost life-size of me dressed as Stryker, the monster. Wow. Nice. <laughs> yeah, it was huge. And overseas, it wasn't called Guyver, it was called Utronics. Wow, okay. And that was the whole sales because they're like, nobody knows what Guyver is, you know. So let's just change the name. So this is a huge poster. And the picture, again, it is me. I don't know what I posed for or took it, but it's like I'm all, I got my arms folded like a rapper, you know. I'm all leaning <laughs> paddle with my head cock, you know, like, yeah, boy. <laughs> and then on the bottom, it says Striker, like Utronics. And it was huge. And the kid's like, oh, my God, you're, I found out you're going to be here in Germany. I jumped on the train. I came out. Would you sign this? And I was really nervous. I'm like, dude, this is like, this is a collector's item. And you want me to scribble on it? Like, <laughs> really? Like, I, I think I'm going to appreciate the value of this thing. And he was like, no, no, that's you. Sign it. So I wrote, yeah, boys. I didn't put my name, Evil Tad. Yeah, boys. Yeah. Love it. Is that how you still sign things? Uh, you know, it's so funny. I do. I I have eight by tens and things. I bring the conventions here in the states. Nobody really gives a you know crap. <laughs> I think the most fan base I get here in the states, the kids that want to meet me from the YouTube channel. That's where they know me from, and they have no idea of the history of the movie work I've done. 
And I don't mind that because that's not really what I'm trying to do with them. I just like teaching those guys and how to build stuff. And I think it's kind of interesting when I went to um, Texas for a convention out there. It was all kind in Texas. And I was out there for a bit and I had a panel. I did a panel called um, Creatures I Played. I have two one called Behind the Scenes and Creatures I Played. And I had a, like a slideshow of all the creatures. So the fan base kids were like, oh, my God, how oh, evil that's going to be. So they came. And I had a couple of people who were just completely floored. They're like, oh, my God, I love those movies. I did not have any idea that was you. And that's when I started realizing the huge love and fan base those Guyver movies have. So what I ended up started doing, I started making prints of me as the I did. I have a print of me as Stryker, and I have a print of me as Sten from uh, Guyver 2. The female Zonoid, would you guys, if you guys did not know that, that was me as well, too. You're talking to a Guyver fan base here. I saw Guyver as soon as it hit VHS, the original, and then... All of us, we get together with a friend of the pod for Horror Weekends. One of our movies for that weekend was Guyver 2 Dark Hero. So we've seen that as recent as like three years ago. The thing is interesting about those is that the first one was $3 million. And again, it seems like a lot of money, but for a low-budget film, it's not really. It's pretty darn low-budget. And kudos to Steve and Screaming Mad George because they were dealing with Brian Usna. And Brian Usna, you know, he's just a bit of a schlock monster. You know, yep. it's like yes. <laughs> Very much. And so Steve and George wanted to do something different. And Brian Usen wanted to do what he always did, just crap something out. So <laughs> these guys were trying to make a movie. And Brian was just breathing. like, come on, let's, you know, let's go, let's go, let's go, go. And Brian got really on board, like almost got too involved. Because what was happening was, at the time we were making this movie, Ninja Turtles came out the movie. Mm. And Ninja Turtles was huge success. Because it's like the, the premise is so absurd, but it's really funny. and they actually. Kudos to the guys that made the first movie. I mean, the, the fighting stuff by today's standards really falls apart. But they had the story and the characters were really likable and it was great. They really captured the comic book and the love of the comic book and made it to a live action movie. And I was like, well, they did a really good job at that about friendship and how they work as a team and family. And then, but it was kind of a lighthearted and comedy. So Brian Hughes goes, oh my God, that's what, we got to jump on that bandwagon. We got to make guy even funny. And everybody's like, what? and make it like fun like ninja turtles and we're like dude we're we're actually shooting right now we have a script locked right now we have everybody here on set and users like oh no we gotta make it like that you know to make money and like they're they're two completely different things they're two different genres you can't so a lot of you people out there the big guyver fans you wonder why i got zany and kind of wacky is because that's what happened you know steve and george wanted to make one movie and then brian used wanted to make this wacky comedy and they were dealing with that. You got to a point where it was like, okay, fine, fine, whatever. If we're going to do it, let's just make it clean and good, make it look as good as possible and somewhat entertaining. And if we have to do it, make it more like a wink at the camera kind of thing. Like, So they, they ended up doing it. But then as time went on, the film came out and nobody saw it or cared. But I think it did relatively well enough for them to warrant for another one. The Japanese would like another stab at it. So Steve, that's when he pitched for Guyver 2. And I think that thing was like, $800,000. Wow. Wow. So low budget. And when you watch it, the only thing it gives it away is they shot with Super 16 and they had all no names in it, but the filmmaking style is 100 It's darker. Mm-hmm. It's shot better. There's certain things in the fighting's you know, extraordinary, but you have to give and take, you know, it's kind of. So Yuzna wasn't involved at all in Dark Hero? Oh, no, not at all. Because <laughs> <Good>. that <laughs> answers something that I had wondered for years, which is you'd see Guyver one and two and there's such a tonal difference. And normally it's because, you know, there's different people at the helm, but I'd always wonder, well, it's, it's the same folks at the helm. And yet there's this big tonal shift. No, it's a, what it was is that Steve was able to do what he wanted to do. 
when you have producers involved, uh, I hate to tell you guys that shut everybody's dreams. Directors don't have the power you think they do. Oh, no, they no, really no. don't. It's all producers. It's who's yep. got the money. And executive decisions are just how they're decided. It's so asinine and, and maddening that to be a director, it's a miracle anybody gets one or two films off the ground without killing somebody. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's maddening. And so you have to sell your soul a little bit. And Steve did so much work and he really pulled some stuff off. It's like the thing about Guyver, the first one, what made that film so spectacular was there's no way at that time you could make a movie like that for $2 million because everybody he brought on to do the monsters were top-notch makeup guys and sculptors and creature extraordinary guys. And the way Steve sold it to them was, look, I haven't got a lot of money. It's a little bit of production, but to make it fun for you guys to work on, I'll have everybody design to each creature. Like I'm doing the main Guyver character. My friend Moto is doing, I think he was doing a Mazo. Eddie Yang was doing Lisker. Jordi Shell was doing Remy's and Jim Cagle sculpted Striker, my monster. And uh, they go, these great guys and everybody just designed their own creatures. Like they kind of talked about what they wanted to do and kind of did R&D, but they each one got to sculpt and design each character. So there wasn't That's one cool. guy to That's yeah. great. So each creature in the film was designed for somebody different. No, no, the end results were, were amazing. That's so, a good way of doing things. Yeah. And it's like I tell people, these weren't foam fabricated. These were sculpted suits. The only I came on board not only as a suit performer, I did and my big claim to fame was designing the Gabri unit, make it do all the, the gag of shooting open and shooting the tentacles and <laughs> doing that. But I was working with uh, a Sal Godo. We just needed more zonoids. And so we foam fabricated these zonoids in the back. So there's a whole bunch of zonoids running around the background, which they get way too close to the camera, in my personal opinion. <laughs> and they're just foam, they're like big rubber guys in the suits, kind of wiggling. And when you watch the movie, you can spot them. But like you get the hero guys up front. You got the rubber guys, like the Japanese monster suit. <laughs> Those were the ones that Sal Goda and I made. We made them in like a matter of weeks. I ended up playing one, uh, a Russian, yeah, I end up playing Striker and they throw me. And then uh, there's, there's one where one runs at him and he does a flip and hits his ears and he runs into a pole. And that was me again. So, <laughs> yeah, it's really ludicrous. But, but they pulled so many favors on that film that it got a lot of bang for the buck for that movie. No, it came out looking amazing. And speaking of Asal Goto, who also shares a credit on the project we're asking you about today, you're working on Guyver 2 Dark Hero. And at what point are you approached and asked, basically, are you familiar with the great Muda? This thing is so funny about that. Steve, you know, on Guyver 2, there wasn't a lot of money. So we all paid, got like a flat day rate to work. And at the time, I was working on Ultraman, the new Ultraman they were shooting in the U.S., mm-hmm. You probably never saw it because it was so dismal. I remember there being a new one around that time. Yeah. Where they were shooting it and I was on that. And I was always getting my paycheck. I was doing miniatures for that. So we were building like miniature parts of the city and it was they're doing trying to do it with uh, kaiju Japanese style, you know, with guys in suits and miniatures buildings and whatnot. But they found out really quickly what you can do in Japan for that amount of money compared to what you can do in the States was like the nothing. So it was like we were just trying to come up with stuff of ways of doing building things. We ended up making buildings out of cardboard and using foam core to trim things. Yeah, it was so low budget. Wow. And of course it ended up looking so dismal because we just they didn't have the money for it. So we ended up doing all this stuff at the time we were doing Guyver. Steve goes, Hey look, Steve uh, got hired a while back because Steve does amazing makeup and sculpting, you know, for the Predator suit and the Gill Man, the Monster Squad. Yep. And he went to Japan to teach a class. And apparently it went over really well. And so the guys from Japan, from the Japanese school, said, we'd like to do a video, like a class, like a presentation, like how to sculpt a monster suit. 
it seems like uh, okay, but that I can definitely show this, these are my techniques and my tricks. But if you guys want to do that, this could be a fee plus the fee to make the suit and everything. And so I think he gave some astronomical number, and they said okay. And so what we did was Steve came out. So he was at the shop, Richard screaming at George's shop, since he had my body cast left over from Guyver 2. I had a body cast from Stin. So he already since he had the body cast of me. He's like, well, in that case, let's go ahead and do this video. Ended up doing this whole, we did the whole process, you know, body casting, sculpting. And I was in the video and these guys from Japan came out and he documented the entire thing and going to edit down and be at the school. So if you go to the school, you get to watch this video. So anyway, makes this elaborate costume. And then it turns out the guys that shot that video got hired to do this thing with the great muda <laughs> it was like a promotion piece so these guys were like hey they came back and said dude told steve wang hey we want to do this thing promoting the great muda and we want to use those your sets and so steve had this giant cave set from diver dark hero so yeah, yeah. so again so they got, i got roped into it and we literally shot that in one evening wow <laughs> impressive yeah they called me up and said you want to do this i'm like yeah sure so then i came out and Steve stuck me in that suit. I had contacts. I got that the, the suit that he built for the Japanese video was the monster in the video, which is, I'm so glad they did that because otherwise you would never see that suit. It was an awesome suit. It was intense from the top to bottom. It was well made. It just seemed very natural and alive and vivid. It was impressive. Yeah, and it was it's beautifully sculpted. Fun thing was one of those things is that I always tease Steve Wang that everything he does is so overbuilt that you could get up with a magnifying glass that every costume he does. I'm glued into it. He paints it. He had all those multicolored layers. He's, he's really into lizards mm -hmm. and nature. It shows. And he did airbrush and he's these little veins and patterns on it. And so when I squeeze in the suit, you see all this work on it. You know, for a fact, you're not seeing any of that in the movie. It's moving around so fast. And, everything. and I finally turned him one time and said, dude, like, why do you put so much in these things? And she said, because they're mine, because that's my name and that's my brand. Granted, it might not be caught on film. He goes, you don't think it does, but subconsciously it is. The quality, even though it runs on screen or it's in for two seconds, there's not one shot where they stay with a camera and get close to you, you're going to flinch because he goes, I make everything as good as possible because you don't know where they're going to shoot it, how they're going to shoot it, how they're going to light it. You're going to make things as good as, good as possible. And that day comes where somebody looks up and finally gets to see your costume up close and goes, oh, wow, that's impressive. Because he goes, how many things have you walked up close and went, ooh, that didn't look that great? I'm like, 90% uh, of everything? Mm-hmm. Hmm. I thought it was a great wake-up lesson for me. And he finally realized, he goes, after him telling me that, I realized, he said, from now on, like, I, like, oh, that's that's your name. That's your brand. That's your quality. That's your career. Yep. So anything comes off your hands, anybody touches or picks it up, and says, oh, that was done by Steve Wayne. You can see it. And he said other thing, too, if you ever get a job, you bid on something, and you end up going under budget, there's a lesson learned. He goes, but the work doesn't, you don't compromise your work. It's like no matter what you bid for, that's on you. You make sure that you deliver your reputation as your name. And so I thought, oh, so that's great lesson. It's a fantastic mindset. So were you familiar with Japanese wrestling or the Great Muda at all going into the project? Well, I no. They kept telling me he's huge in Japan. I said, No, I believe you. <laughs> <laughs> and he was super sweet. The actual Great Muda himself was very sweet and a nice guy. And we were choreographing this fight thing. And we were doing this thing where he was going to clothesline me. Mm -hmm. uh, the guys were shooting and Steve was directing. And he goes, okay, you come in and you do this thing with Ted. And the one thing about Steve and I is that we worked together for so long. I did Kung Fu Rascals and I've done Guyver 1 and 2 with Steve. So I know what it's like to be smashed, kicked and fake fight and take a little bit of a blow and use some weight. And 
somebody hits you, you kind of fake it. And like, so we did so much fake fighting that we got used to knowing, we know how each other, how to work off each other. So Steve was trying to teach him to do this clothesline thing and great moves. Oh yeah, yeah, because he's a wrestler, right? So they call action and Muda wouldn't do anything to me. He would just bring his arm up <laughs> and Steve's like, no, oh, no, you can actually clip him a little bit. It's like, you don't, you know, hit him a little bit more. Like I ended up having to run into his arm. I think it was what I ended up doing. Because <laughs> <laughs> he was being so cautious. Not to hit me. Evil Ted Smith wrestles strong style. <laughs> yeah, and I was like, <laughs> but it was, and that was the one that really stuck with me. It was, it was being very sweet about it. Like Steve's like, no, it, it's Ted. <laughs> <laughs> and my going joke is on Guyver Dark Hero at the very end with the evil Guyver Zonoid. Um, all the dialogue was me. All the fighting stuff was uh, Kuichi and his stunt team guys. But Steve Wang was like. There's a bunch of dialogue at the very end with the villain. He goes, I really want you to play him for all the dialogue stuff. I'm like, okay. So we shot all the fight stuff with the guys. And then at the very end, well, the dialogue and the, him going back and forth with the guy at the very end was me in the suit. And I played a character in uh, Kung Fu Rascals called the Bamboo Man from Kapow. And it was a crazy, like, demon guy, very eccentric. And the way I moved, and Steve really liked it and wanted me to bring that performance back for this character. So I was doing it again. He's like, okay, this is the scene where. Your control metal's cracked. So my mind, control metal's cracking and I'm malfunctioning. And he punches me in the head. And so there's a gag where I'm on my knees and he comes up and he runs up and he punches me in the head in slow motion. So Steve is telling us, okay, we're going to call it high speed. So, tell you, so he's going to punch you in the head. I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> he's like, well, we're shooting at high speed. So we can't fake it. I want, I want that impact on your head. I was like, what am I getting paid for this? <laughs> <laughs> you so lunch. literally in the movie, you guys watch it, and Guyver 2, when he runs up and he punches me in the head, that he's punching me in the head. <laughs> I didn't, didn't know you were doing your own stunts that day. Yeah, yeah. I had a control metal with a light on it. I put a little foam, and when he punched me, you can see the impression of the metal on my head. Oh. We got out of the costume. Oh, oh no. Yeah. I was like, dude. <laughs> <laughs> I said, did you get it? Did you get it? He said, yeah, we got it. I'm like, yeah, you better have it. <laughs> it's a great trick, but I can only do it one time. Well, I'm not doing that again. <laughs> well, funny to know that the stage combat with a wrestler who's known for strong style wrestling and for frequently, you know, bleeding and busting himself open during his matches was not the most brutal combat you experienced on a movie set. <laughs> Well, I think is that if I was another pro wrestler, it might have been something different. But since I was a scrawny little actor boy, I don't think he <laughs> felt comfortable hitting me. But no, we shot that really quickly. And the guys that we were uh, with were the same guys that shot the uh, the video for the making of. So we spent a lot of time together because making that uh, monster suit thing took like 30 days, almost a month to make that thing. So they were really shooting bit by bit and step by step. And so I was around for every one of that. But that is how I was the monster and the great Buddha. Love it. Yeah. Discovering that video was one of the favorite things I found for the pod. It was so much fun to watch. If anyone still has access to the suit, I'm just going to throw this out there. So we're recording this at the end of January. So February 12th, Muda is going to be challenging Go Shiozaki for the NOAA Heavyweight Championship. If you've still got the suit, there's plenty of time for you to do a run-in and just have him interfere. <laughs> because the whole gimmick of this match, as I understand, is Muda's getting towards the end of his career and wants to get this title. So I think it'd be appropriate that if he's wrapping up, that his last opponent should be canonically his first opponent, which was you. 
<laughs> in terms of the Muda continuity. Because you were there, right? When he came out of his chrysalis at the opening of the short, you were there. It so. seems only appropriate. Oh, how funny. The thing is so funny, being foam rubber in the suits, that's one thing about foam rubber. Within a year or two, it, already, it just falls apart. Mm. So anything over a decade, it's turned to dust. Yeah. Um, I believe, if anything, Steve still has the molds. But um, that was quite an experience, but I'm so glad that you guys got to see. I always wondered, another great Muda. Wow. <laughs> he paints his own face, too. That was something I did not know. No, thank you for indulging us a bit in, in that particular. I think Jake and Nick might have some questions for you on some of the other items you've worked on. Oh, guys, please. I'm open. I only have one question. Um, it's not necessarily about anything specific. So there's always been a part of me that regrets not delving more into uh, like horror makeup and sculpting and such. You know, it was all these... Growing up, I loved all the creature features and I loved all the outfits and anything. It was just like I would be like 10 times happier than I am. I'm a very happy person and I'd be 10 times happier than I am now if I might my field was anything with like creating monsters. It would be fantastic. And so I know the kind of person I would be working this field. So I have to ask you with that in mind, is there some secret room of yours where you have proper mood lighting on some sort of suit or device that you created that you just every so often lovingly touch and go someday we will have our movie <laughs> i uh working with steve wang i did this low budget film called kung fu rascals and again i worked like i said i did nine months of my life for free and we shot on the weekends it was like thinking that he was doing movies and i was working on shows and we all were it was a bunch of us steve and his friends and Circle of my friends, and we all worked on the weekends and did things off set. And it took years. It took a couple of years to get the film done. We literally wrapped shooting it and took off and shot Guyver, the movie. And then Guyver was wrapped and then, like, on VHS. And we went back and finished up Kung Fu Rascals because it was all in the can. We just had to, we had to do ADR and a lot of post stuff on it. But it was, I got to see two films come together, the whole making of it. But I mean, I knew an idea how it was done. Then when you're on set and you really watch all the stuff and the madness come together, both from a relatively budget to no budget, on all these films, I had a little bit of the bug and I wanted to make something. And I was writing a script and had some ideas. And it wasn't until like a friend of mine back in St. Louis come into some money and they wanted to be producers. And they say, do you still want to be a filmmaker? I'm like, I do. And I'm like, well, we got, we got money. So what do you want to do? I'm like, oh, holy cow. And at the time I had this idea, this post-apocalyptic cyborg movie I wanted to make. Nice. And I started bashing up with my friends and we finally realized like after our doing our treatment stage, we realized, we both looked at each other and went, I can't do this. <laughs> we have to make something reasonable. So I ended up downsizing about a bunch of demon hunters, two demon hunters in Los Angeles, semi-future Los Angeles and modern day like finding demons. And you guys are familiar with that Japanese uh, film called Wicked City. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I love that movie. I was inspired by that. Well, okay, let me try again. I ripped that film off. And... <laughs> Some people use the word inspired. I was like, yeah. But it was, we. I ended up taking the premise of it and playing with the concept, but changing stuff enough around that became my own. Got him on board and we took about, it took me three years to get the film made. I think we shot it in 2002. We got the funding and we shot the thing in 30 days for a low budget film that's ambitious, but we did it. And then we were editing we realized it was about a year in post because we didn't have any money. We spent the money to make the movie. So it was literally a year in post of us piecing the stuff that we didn't have. Like, oh, we don't need shots of LA. And so we did a lot of miniatures and mm -hmm. force perspective shots and do these gags and build these miniatures. And 
did some visual effects shots ourselves, and then we finally got it wrapped up. And that year we released it in 2004, and it got picked up. It got sold to Think Films, and it got to Blockbuster, Hollywood Video, and like anything, it came like just like Giver. It went up and it was gone. They just dumped it. Mm. No advertising, no marketing. But um, the film got out there, and I learned a lot making that movie. I loved it. It was hard. And I watch it now. All I want to do is cut 20 minutes out of it because <laughs> you learn making your first film. But the thing was so funny about that is after doing that, I was all fired up to make another one, but I wanted to get money. And then 2008 came and the economy crashed and the days of people giving you money to make films is gone. It was over. Yeah. Over. And so I'm like, nah, guess what? I'm not doing that anymore. But I, at the time I was working at the prop house and I was making good money, but it was kind of soul sucking because you would kill yourself making the stuff of these shows and these crazy deadlines and like you're in your teens and your twenties, it's fun. In your thirties, it's still fun. Forties kind of turns into work. And by the time you hit your fifties, you're like, okay, this is, I was done. And I took a break and my buddy one day I was working with left. He's I'm out. I'm not doing this anymore. I'm going back to Pittsburgh with my wife. I'm going to move back. I can't do it anymore. And he was my supervisor at the time. I'm like, well, dude, if you're leaving, I'm leaving. Yeah. So we both jumped ship. I knew what I was going to do at the time. I was just doing this YouTube thing for fun and then started spending more time toward that and started, wait, I could do this for a living. And then I had friends who were still making independent films. And so I'd help them on stuff. And that was fun. And so it kind of brought the fun back. But that's how I found myself where I am today. Hmm. It's a love and hate relationship. I really do love the industry. I love it so much. I love watching films. I talk about films. My wife won't have any problem telling you I talk about it a lot. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and I still have a love for it. And that's why I... The joy now is I get to pick my projects because if people come to me, I still have some people, some of my peers will reach out to me if it's something that I want to do. But what I like about my YouTube stuff, I get to make what I want to make. And when you work at the prop house, you built some cool things, but most of the time you build stuff that you didn't want to make, but that was your job. You just had to make what they gave you. And I, I really hone my skills at that prop shop. But um, it's a crazy mistress. It's a love-hate relationship. <laughs> nice. To jump back a little bit, I do have to ask you, in 1999, you yes. worked on Rob Zombie's tour. <laughs> yes, I did. And I found a full-length video of one of the concerts and the giant robot you made. Yes. I remember seeing on your website this robot. I thought, well, that's cool. And then I saw how big it was in the concert. How, how did that come about? <laughs> that, you know, that's a great story. I'm glad you asked because I helped Rob. We did a bunch of stuff for him. He got back from this Rock is Dead tour. He did a Rock is Dead tour. Uh, no, not Rock is Dead. No, it was the Hellbilly Deluxe album. The Hellbilly Deluxe album that came out. Here's a here's a funny story for all you Rob Zombie fans. Rob took his hiatus from White Zombie. They were all kind of burned out on each other. They were done. Well, Rob was. I don't think the rest of the band was. But by the time More Human Than Human hit big at the MTV Award, mm -hmm. and Rob was there getting all the benefits and stuff, and just as that album hit big, they took a hiatus. Yeah. People were like, "Why?" And Rob's like. I've been doing this for 14 years nonstop. I was living out of a van touring and the film got big and they're both like, they got some money. Finally, it was doing successful enough. They all had the money. So they want to take a break. So in that break, Rob just kind of like kicked it and all the other band members kicked it. So the fan base was there and people were waiting for that another white zombie album to come out. They're waiting, waiting. It wasn't coming out. So Rob on his downtime started playing with his own stuff and mixing and playing stuff and creating all his music with the intention of making soundtracks or for other people or making like a little separate thing. And like he had no intention of doing like a solo album. And finally his manager went, dude, you got enough of this stuff. Why don't you just put DVD out? 
Rob's like, well, it's my stuff. It's not really white zombie stuff. It's my stuff. And the guy's like, well, just, just do a little solo album. And Rob went, oh, okay. And Rob thought, well, it's not going to do as well as white zombie, but I'll just do it anyway. So Rob did it, released it, and it went like double, triple platinum or something like that. Like, <laughs> it was huge. I remember when it was released. It was a big deal. Yeah. And I never get, we were at the studio making videos to that album. We were, I was on set with him and I met him through Norma Cabrera. I was a big makeup artist. I started doing stuff for Rob for the videos. So you guys know the Dragula video? Yeah. You put the robot cops in there or whatever they are. Yeah. That's me, my buddy, Tim. I made those robot cops. And then the, uh, the devil go-go dancers. Yeah. Yeah. I'm the one on the right. <laughs> and then the uh the witches you know dragula with the witches and stuff like that. i was one of the witches it was just rob and a circle of friends and we just put stuff on and jump on these videos uh have you guys seen the living dead girl video yep yeah there's a guy with the long blonde hair the eye makeup and the beard that's me <laughs> that's great so we were doing that before the album got released so we were making videos because when you release the album the videos go out and that's when Rob was like, yeah, this will do okay. It'll be fine. We'll see what happens. And as soon as it went big, Rob just called the band went, yeah, we're done. <laughs> no more White Zombie. Wow. The rest is history. So then we did that. And I worked fast and cheap at the time. And I was like, I was just having a good time. I liked, there was no industry work because everything was kind of slow at the time. And then Rob did it and he toured, took off and did the tour. It did really well. And he came back. And I think my buddy Norman went with him on the first tour. And the fanfare for this album was really doing well. So when they got back, Rob wanted to go back out again with that album because it was doing really well. And I think it was approached by Korn, the band Korn. And Rob's like, yeah, I'll open for Korn. I'm like, what? And I thought it goes to show you what a businessman he was because I know Korn. I, I wasn't that big of a fan of it. I think a couple of their songs. And they were different, but at the time, they were bigger headliners than Rob was. So Rob was like, by all means, I will open for Korn. So he went on tour with Corn, and he's like, I want to do this big, crazy show. I want a giant robot. I want guys in costumes. I want all this. And so Rob started spitballing these ideas at me. I'm like, I want to do this. I'm like, okay. And so the thing was, what kept the cost effective was I made everything out of foam. That giant robot you see on stage was just sheet foam that I fabricated and coated with rubber. And here's a story you guys will like. MTV came out. And so we were touring with this thing. And how the tour works is that we would show up that day, unload all our gear. And it was a giant rotating stage. which stage was huge and it would rotate. So we had corn on one side of the stage and they would rotate it. And we'd build our stage and rotate it back to corn. So it was all set up on a rotation platform. And then we'd be on stage and we'd do our whole bit. And so we'd come out and we'd do the big show, giant robot, pyro, smoke, you know, fire, digital effects. And the stage would rotate. And as it rotated and corn was playing, we broke it down like immediately. Wow. So it took us all day to put up. I'm not joking, you guys. We'd have Rob's entire stage unpacked, loaded down, and back in the trucks in 30 minutes. Wow. Yeah, we had it down to a science. Having seen that set, I can't. That's hard to imagine. I, I am flummoxed. I am literally flummoxed that that robot and that setup was the opening act. That was a hell of a show. <laughs> that was the genius of Rob because what happened was by the time Rob's done with the opening, the kids were chanting zombie, zombie, zombie. So every corn fan showed up to see corn left as a Rob Zombie fan as well, too. Yep. Like yep. 
and they're chanting his name as I'm, I'm like, dang it, that's brilliant. It's like, it wasn't about ego or any of that stuff. Rob knew it's, it's like, no, 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 get his foot in there. And it did, it worked and he generated. And so he had merchandise and t-shirts. So the robot, same thing with the robot in the stage, we could break it down. And my buddy Tim and I were on tour and the robot, the torso, like the chest, the body of it uh, was on a backpack and I would wear the backpack and I'd look up the robot's chest. The head was above my, it was this huge thing above mm -hmm. and I had holes on the side. I would puppeteer the robot's arms by his elbows. The uh, the lower part of his body, I'd stood on a platform with a shelf on it with wheels and my friend Tim would get underneath me with the wheels and he would grab these handles we'd made on a cart and we had the path taped out on the floor of the stage. <laughs> All he had to do was look at the stage floor and follow the tape line with his headlamp. He had a headlamp. And he would puppeteer that while I stood on top of the platform on the wheels, moving my arms around with a giant robot. So when you see it from afar, it's like this giant menacing mechanical monster. And we rolled backstage. And as soon as we were done, we'd pop it off, break it down, and we'd load it into the cart itself. Like everything would fit inside the cart. And we'd throw a tarp and throw it back. And so... The MTV people come back and like, where's the robot? <laughs> <laughs> we're like, it's all packed up. They're like, wait, that giant thing's all packed up. So the guys were like, oh, how do you remote control the robot? And I was like, you're looking at him. The robot. <laughs> <laughs> Never get this. Rob grabs my arm and goes, yes, Ted. The remote control to the giant robot. I was like, oh, yeah, I'm backstage with it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I finally realized later that night, Rob goes, dude, don't tell them it's a giant costume. If they think it's a giant mechanical robot, you're puppeteering, you say yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's incredible. And actually, he was absolutely right. It's like you're taking the mystery out of it. It's a magic trick. You don't show them people how you do the magic trick. And it was so funny that people were literally baffled because what nobody would come backstage until the show was over. And the last people went on was Corn. So he had all these all this fanfare for the tour. So everybody would run backstage to look for the robot. We already had on the truck. It was already gone. So people would come back after the Corn show and MTV and all these guys. Yeah, they came back after the show was done. They went to see both shows. They saw Rob and Corn and come back and look for everything and was like, where is it? <laughs> Magical mystery. <laughs> and I tell them, we broke it down. They're like, that fast? And I'd be like, yeah, it's full. And we're like, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's fabulous. It's amazing. If we ever get big enough that we ever like moderate panels or something like that, we're going to follow the Rob Zombie logic. We'll come out, we'll have pyrotechnics, big robot before the guest even comes. <laughs> you may have come to see Kane Hodder, but you're leaving thinking about the Scary Stuff podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no matter what you're doing and where you're doing it, go big or go home. <laughs> you know, and the funny thing was, Rob, like, he had such a love and respect for Alice Cooper because he said Alice Cooper was the rock concert stage show. He had performances, he had dancers, props, a show. Each song had a different theme. And Rob really embraced that. And so people wonder where that came from. And I was with Rob on that because he said that Rob was kind of happy grunge was dead because grunge was a bunch of guys on stage with flannel shirts playing music. It wasn't about performance or metal bands anymore. Truth. You know, all the 80s heavily metal stuff is gone. And grunge was making a comeback. So when Rob toured, Rob said, I want to bring back the show that got phased out by grunge. I want to do the shows. And man, he did. And, and you guys, anybody's listening to this podcast, you can just type in the Rock is Dead tour videos 
and see all that crazy stuff on stage. And the robot, my biggest regret with that robot was that we wanted to make the robot look so sinister and everything. So I made him black with the biggest mistake because the stage was black and his lighting. And so when you do see it, it's like in some ways it's kind of it makes it a little bit more mysterious because you can see him, but not really. It's like he's all silhouetted in his light. He has giant glowing red eyes, very asymmetrical, like bug like head. And I was very inspired by the Queen Alien kind of thing going on. So he had this big elongated head on it and all the lights. Nice. But it made him come out ambiguous. And I look back on it now, I probably would have made him a little bit brighter, more like silver and then darken the edges. So he would have stand out a little bit more. But maybe it was a perfect storm. Maybe it was making him dark was just enough to make him look mysterious. You know? It was pretty mysterious in the video I watched. It was I was impressed. Yeah, but it, it, I love it because, yeah, people literally, uh, for all you people, when you see the video, yeah, it's, it looks very big, very menacing. And it was quite a spectacle and people loved it. And if you ever came back and see it, you know, it's foam with PVC pipes and a guy, you know, pulling strings, you know. Uh, <laughs> I love it. Huh. That's a good question. I'm ready for more. What else you guys got? So kind of keep it in the late 90s. One of our favorite movies that you worked on was Fifth Element. Oh, yeah. And I saw, I was reading the kind of the Wikipedia entry for it. And I noticed that it, said it had 80 workers six months to build the model for Fifth Element. That, that sounds pretty intense. Did you enjoy working on that? Working with a team that big? They were shooting the principal photography in Pinewood Studios in London at the time. They were shooting all the principal photography, and we were shooting all the miniature stuff in Los Angeles at Digital Domain. And uh, it was a big show. It was crazy. We had a lot of this was digital was there. We still had CG, but it wasn't there yet. I mean, digital was still being used mostly to instead of getting, you know, how we used to do the old compositing with blue screen. Doing stuff compositing with digital was super fast and clean, but they were still shooting two different elements and putting them together. So we did a lot of uh, miniatures for that show. So when you watch that movie, I think people think a lot of that's digital and a lot of it is not. That was all miniatures. The only thing that was digital were like the shots of tons of cars in the streets going back and forth were digital. But all the shots of New York City and Corbin Dallas and all the uh, Lilo walking out in the building stuff is all miniatures. Nice. New York, the buildings we built like are 20 feet tall. They're all models of New York City, and we built all that stuff. And so we built the cab, the couple of us on this cab. And when we started building it, we looked at the blueprints, and we're looking at the car that photographs the car from the movie, and we're looking at it going, this doesn't, this doesn't look right. So we called the guys in England and said, hey, we got your blueprints here. We just doesn't look right. And the guys, oh, yeah, because we didn't really follow the blueprints. <laughs> we just kind of built the cab as we went. And we're like, oh, okay. So... Our model shop supervisor jumped on a plane, went out to England, and he made this giant yardstick, like heavy big lines with black and white with numbers on it. It would sit against the cab, and he photographed that full-size cab from every which way angle, and he came back and took the photo. And man, it was such a godsend, because with that, we were able to gauge what was what from what side. And so we actually reproduced, the. we were making, we made the model of the cab from the photographs of the full size when they built Lincoln. So that's why when you see the movie cutting back and forth, it's seamless. You really can't tell. The only time it's a miniature cab is when you see it floating all by itself. The shots of it, like pulling out of the garage is the miniature. When they pull up next to it, hook up to it, it's a miniature. When it flies away and pulls the cable line, like that's all miniature shots. We did all that in the studio huh. in miniature. But the full size stuff of them dry, that's when it was full size. Even the bolt, when he, Corbin Dallas flies and gets hit with bullets, the balls are in the car with the machine gun. That's a full-size cab on a gimbal with squib hits. And they just did it full-size. Wow. They did that. And uh, we then, of course, we had to have our cab 
we built that we had to go back with a Dremel and make little bullet holes and dents in it and try to match continuity and stuff like that. Mm. The one shot is they were like, there's a shot where Lilu falls and rips to the top of the cab. And then we see, and out of fear of seeing her, we, uh, I think Brian Ripley, we took a Barbie doll and dressed up like Lilu and put her in the back. And there was nothing. So we took some foam core and stuck it really quick and painted it red and made the back. It was so fast and hodgepodge. We threw it in there and like all the stuff we did for that movie. I was at San Diego Comic-Con literally two years ago, I think it was. And lo and behold, there's a place called the London Prop Shop. They have one of the cabs on display and I lost my mind. Like, oh my God, that's it. Nice. The guy's like, what? I said, I was laughing at the guy at the prop shop. I said, I built this cab. (laughs) I started breaking down a little step on it, showing him. He was like, oh my God, you really did. I was like, yeah. I was explaining all the mounts. When you have a model, a miniature for a movie, in the old days, you had to have pull mounts for the model because when you have a model, whatever angle you're shooting it from, sometimes they plan ahead. You know, like if you shoot the model from the front, you have to mount it from behind. If you shoot it from behind, you have to mount it from the front. So there's pieces of the model that have to be removable to mount the pole. Mm. So throughout the cab and on the very back of the cab, they need to mount this pole on it. And it's like there was just no really pretty way to do it. So I had to take a rotary tool and a cutting wheel. I had to cut out the license plate around the cab and everything was all smooth and organic looking. So had to be there couldn't be any seams on it. So I had to make it really like nice and smooth and seamless. And I did it with Bondo. I had this whole thing where I would take the hole I cut out, put it with Vaseline on the edges, push it with Bondo at Cure, I'd pop it out, trim it so it fit in perfectly every time we painted it and all. So I was telling this guy the story and you could see the seam on the back where it popped open. And it was like seeing an old girlfriend. Like, oh there it is. <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. Huh. And I think it sold for like forty thousand, like like something ridiculous. Mm. Somebody bought it. Nice. I didn't make forty thousand making it. No. <laughs> <laughs> Just for the record. Well, we've touched on bits and pieces of your Hollywood career between the miniatures, the makeup, and whatnot. So let's talk a little bit about what you've been doing the last few years. So, what prompted you to pivot into foam cosplay and live streaming, and a lot of what you're doing today? It was very organic. I um. I'd see people doing it. I could never wrap my head around how people made a living being a social media presence or a personality like that at the time. But I knew cosplay and I was seeing stuff on MySpace. Let me date myself there. (laughs) (laughs) This is when MySpace was happening and I see these kids making crazy costumes and uh, it switched over from MySpace to Facebook and I could see these people making amazing stuff and then on YouTube and everybody's about hot glue. Everybody's using hot glue, hot glue, hot glue and making stuff. And I was like, dude, there's better cements for putting foam together and making heat curl and shaping. So those things I learned working for the Japanese guys, you know, making the costumes for doing the Japanese style. So I just thought, well, I'll just make a simple video on how to make a foam helmet. And I'll apply these techniques I've learned working in the movie industry. And I did that video on how to make a foam helmet and it just took off. And so people started getting, we want more. And I would start making my videos. I always self-conscious. I thought I was always over explaining things. Like I would explain everything I was doing step by step. And it turned out that's all I'd get back from people. It's like, oh, that's great. We love that you do that. And it turned out I started watching other people. And they do. Other videos will just kind of glaze over it. Or they do time lapse and not tell you what they're doing at all. And so I finally realized I started making really good narrative videos. Yeah. And it just started making an income and started making videos. Started making a, got an Amazon affiliate account and started getting kicked back from the sales. And to me, I'm still, I always, I've been at like six, seven years. I'm, I'm still new at it. I'm still learning. I think I could probably do better. I just, this pandemic kind of stole the thunder for me a little bit because I just lost my motive yep. and drive to do anything. Yeah. Yep. I think my wife and I are wearing the same sweatpants 
so days in a row. <laughs> as long as they can't get up and walk up on their own, you're fine. Yeah. <laughs> it gets to a certain point where it's like, I was really getting some momentum. like, And so I'm trying to get the momentum back because it's like, you just got to be consistent. And the one thing I do like about it is that everything I do, I always try to do better next time. Like the videos get better. A pattern gets better. It's like the whole mission with what I do is just to get better every time I do something. It's getting more and more. But cosplay really brought the fun back for me. It just reminded me of how I was when I was starting. Like I was young and 14 or 15 years old. I saw Star Wars. and All I wanted to do was make stuff. And that mode of making things just for yourself was exciting because I worked for so long making things for other people, making what they wanted, that I was able to get back to the roots of what got me into making was just making the things I want to make and making it for fun. So the cosplay kids kind of brought the fun back for me. So I know they always thank me all the time. I'm always like, no, I want to thank them for saving me, for getting out of that rut and bringing the, the fun creative stuff back. And the one thing I do in my videos, I really want to cater to all the people that I really try to keep my stuff that I do really accessible and easy because with all the 3D printing out there, people are 3D printing, people are buying silicone and casting rubbers and things like that. And I've done that for like almost 30 years of my life. I've done that. and there's people out there who do videos on that, but that's not what I want to do. I want to appeal to the the newbies and the up-and-comers to show people that you don't need a 3D printer to make a costume. You don't need to know how to use urethane and casting and silicone rubbers. Everything you see in movies, you can make the same thing with just a craft knife, cutting mats, and foam and glue. You can still get that quality without the expenditure of materials and, and machines. You can literally, I really want to stick with the uh, the hands-on thing. So five years from now or 10 years from now, I'd still like to be mostly known for that guy that does that. Well, I watched a few of your videos prepping for this. And one of the ones that you did was Charlie the Robot from Scooby-Doo. <laughs> yeah. And, and I don't know anything about foam or, or cosplay. And I, I really just enjoyed watching it and kind of getting an idea of what it is that people are doing. And also that Charlie the Robot was in the, the credits for Scooby-Doo when I was a kid one of the things that scared the hell out of me. So it was one of the, the origins of me even being into horror and to do it. So it was neat to see somebody make a costume of that. And that was for Dragon Con where I found out my friends were doing Scooby-Doo villains. And I was like, what? And so, of course, every time I'd want, oh, I want to do the Laughing Space Ghost. Like, no, I'm doing that. Dang it. <laughs> <laughs> the Deep Sea Diver guy, like, no, I'm doing that too. Like, ah. So everybody nabbed all the like really popular ones. And also I realized Charlie Robot and I said to my group, is anybody doing Charlie Robot? And I'm like, no, I'm like, done, score, it's mine. <laughs> well, it was great. Uh, thank you so much. Yeah, Charlie Robot. And then um, I like that video. I just recently did one like making a sword prop for my friend's film. That was a fun one I like doing. I liked, uh, I did a space helmet with a chrome visor using a pre-existing Halloween mask and how to make that into a space helmet. Yeah, I like trying to do as much as I can with just like things you can get off the shelf or your local hardware store or craft store. Because I have a 3D printer. And I got it. And then I was going to have somebody teach me how to use it. And the pandemic struck. So I got this thing gathering dust. But I know eventually I got to learn it because all the kids are doing it. But I just don't want people to think that you have to get something to make something. Because you don't. You really don't. Just your hands and tools and your imagination. Love it. Yeah. No. Thank you for doing them. The I'm a process fanatic. So I really enjoy just watching the process. But yeah, your videos are very informative. Like you mentioned, they're constructed in such a way it feels like you know even a novice could replicate them. They're just terrific. I'm also particularly happy because I'm a My Hero Academia fan, and I got to watch you make the mask that Overhaul wears. Oh. So that was particularly fun. Yeah, my youngest loves that show. 
so we're going to be linking to you know your website, your YouTube, and the like as part of this. But is there anything in particular you want to plug? I do have a YouTube channel, the Evil Ted channel. Uh, I also have my website, theeviltedsmith.com. I have my Twitch channel, which is twitch.tv slash evilthedsmith, which I stream every other Monday and Tuesday from 9 a.m. to 11 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. What you guys can do to help me is when you watch a video and you like it, tell your friends about it, share it with them. Go to my website. And on my website, I have Amazon, Amazon links. If you guys are doing any shopping or holiday shopping or shopping for any supplies for your house, if you shop through my link, helps me. I get kickbacks, so I have all my affiliate accounts. So if you're not a cosplayer and you still want to help me in any way, shape, or form, be sure to shop on Amazon. Just click through my link, which helps me as well. So before you do any shopping, shop on my site, click on my link, bookmark it, and I'll be golden. <laughs> no, yeah, absolutely. we're going to link to all that as part of the release of this episode. So we'll be linking that on our Twitter page. Just one last question for you before we let you go, which we ask all the guests or have asked our one guest, Dave Lawson Jr., that we've asked for, <laughs> but intend to ask future guests. What's your favorite horror movie? Oh, my God. <laughs> Ooh. Mm. It, I'll tell you what. There's two different style of horror movies. There's ones I love for the, the theme and the genre of it, and there's the ones that just scared the crap out of me. And I was very young at the time when I saw it and went and saw it in the theater, and it literally scared the bejeebas out of me and rattled me. I think what made it scare me so much was the grittiness of it and the low budget quality of it made it seem real and grounded was the original evil dead. Ooh. Excellent choice. <laughs> it really, and you guys understand, I saw this in the theater and what got me was Stephen King wrote a blurb about it on the ad. And I think Sam Raimi talked about it too. When the film came out, there was something they did not expect. Stephen King was like scariest movie I've ever seen or something like that. And they just jumped on it and used it. As a kid, I saw it, and it's funny because you have to make me realize that I would tell people that, and people go, what, that movie? I think so hokey. I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> you don't understand, guys. you got to come from my perspective. At the time, nothing was made. Everything's ripped off Evil Dead for decades. Yep. Evil Dead was the first one to do the you know, cabin in the woods, college kids in the middle of nowhere, and stuff's going wrong, cars broken down, and there's demon possession. And these guys are know nothing about it. They're doing their best to stay alive. I said, it was absolutely terrifying. And now it's it's a noir. It's a trope. It's been ripped off so much that by the, you try to explain to these people that it doesn't hold up. I'm like, oh, it does. It's just you got to travel back in time. Yep. And then, and then they, of course, made Sam Raimi made Evil Dead 2, which is kind of a wacky comedy. And I think people love that one more than the first one. And I, I always disagree with them. I said, no, the first one is so damn good for just a raw filmmaking aspect of filmmaking. Yep. If you're a filmmaker... And you're working on a zero budget. You guys got to sit down and watch Evil Dead, the original one. And so, especially if you get the special box edition and hear the commentary by uh, Bruce Campbell, it's absolutely flawless. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Bruce Campbell on the DVD says, don't listen to Sam Raimi and Rob Tapper. They don't remember shit. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, listen to me. I'm going to tell you. Everything. And he does. He breaks it down in details of where they shot it, who's playing this person because that girl was gone, so we had to go beat this girl at a bar, it do be a body double. It's very, it's brilliant. So that is my favorite horror movie of all time. Perfect choice. Right. Oh, that's fabulous. Well, once again, can't thank you enough for coming on. We really appreciate you coming onto the pod. Thanks so much. We'll be following up on all your cosplay work and I'm, we're bound to watch another movie you've worked on before too long just looking at your filmography so if you're all right with it we'd love to have you on again in the future oh yeah it's totally yeah, yeah, yeah. what you do is if you watch this morning you'll probably build up more questions 
And uh, I'll tell you what, after we wrap this up, I have to go watch and see my fight with Great Muda. It's been decades. <laughs> I think we all might be doing the same thing. Absolutely. Yeah, Ted, thank you so much. Hey, guys, thanks for having me on. Thanks. Thank you so much. Thank you. Once again, big thanks to Evil Ted for coming onto our podcast for an interview, and we're really hoping to get a chance to talk to him again soon. In the meantime, you can visit evilTedSmith.com slash evil-ted. That's evilTedSmith.com slash evil-ted to read more about Ted and Hill's filmography. And if you scroll to the bottom of that page, you'll see a banner with links to his Twitch and YouTube pages, his Amazon affiliate link, and also a link to TNT Cosplay. You can find Ted on Twitter at twitter.com slash evilted40 and on instagram.com at instagram.com slash evilted underscore channel. And after you followed Ted there, you can find us on Instagram at scarystuffpodcast and on Twitter at scarystuffpod. We'll be back with another episode on a very special movie with another very special guest. But in the meantime, this is Eric saying thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you soon. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm.